Well, we have a few more weeks to go on Revelation, and you may be wondering, when are we going to talk about the rapture? Uh, that's, a, that's an end-timey end kind of thing, right? The rapture. Uh, the rapture is the doctrine that at some point before the end of the age, uh, the Christians will be removed from the world, they'll disappear and float off into heaven, and those left on earth will have a very difficult time. Uh, until Christ finally returns. This is what, uh, you know, the Left Behind series was all about. Um, so when are we going to talk about the rapture as we work through Revelation? And the short answer is uh, we're not going to talk about the rapture <laughs> uh, because Revelation doesn't talk about rapture. Uh, in fact, I, I personally don't think the Bible teaches the doctrine of rapture. Uh, and I would say it's basically a doctrine that's based on a few misinterpretations of a couple verses in 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24. And uh, I want to just, just for example, let's, I want to turn to Matthew 24 and just look at uh, what's going on in Matthew 24. Both 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24 are often the two big proof texts for rapture theology. Uh, in Matthew 24, you get that passage familiar passage, verse 40, uh, you know, uh, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left, two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left, uh, therefore stay awake. And of course, that can sound very rapture-y, right? One's taken up to heaven, one's left behind. Um, you know, there it is. But before these verses, we need to read the context. And if we don't, uh, this is a common uh, reminder that you'll hear often, when you're studying the Bibles, if we don't consider the context, what's going on in the passage, if we just take verses out of context, we can almost make a verse say just about whatever we want. We need to understand what's happening in the passage to get a sense of what's going on. So what's Jesus talking about in this passage, for instance? Well, he's talking about the flood of Noah. And I want to read to you the verses surrounding uh, that, that famous uh, two in the field, one taken, one left passage. So if you look at Matthew 24, verse 37. It says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There will be two men in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken. One will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. So what is Jesus talking about in this passage? Well, he's talking about uh, the, flood of, the flood of Noah. And given the context of the Noah story, do you want to be a person that's taken away? No, you don't. <laughs> the person who's taken away is taken away to judgment. There, it's, it's the ones who are left behind who are the righteous ones. Noah and his family. So in the Noah story, it's actually good to be left behind, right? Because taken away means the same thing as it meant in the Noah story, taken away into judgment, like those taken away in the flood. And so Matthew 24 is, is not about a rapture. Now, what about 1 Thessalonians 4? Well, what's the context here? Here, Paul is comforting Thessalonian believers. Some have died from persecution, and those in the church are wondering, hey, these ones of ours who have died, are they going to miss out when Jesus comes back? When Jesus returns, um, because they've died, 
are they somehow going to miss out on the blessings of the coming kingdom? That's the context. That's the question. Not when will the rapture happen. The question is, those who have died before Jesus returns, what, how are they involved or what is their state when he does come? And Paul's answer is no, they won't miss out. When the Lord returns, when the trumpet sounds and he comes to establish his kingdom fully on earth, then the dead in Christ will rise first and those alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. Now, first off, uh, air doesn't mean going to heaven. But the second thing about this passage to, to pay attention to is, well, what direction is Jesus going? And what's the context? This is about Jesus return his coming back to earth is jesus going to heaven or is jesus going to earth well he's coming back to earth and the language here is about going out to meet jesus as he is returning and paul is using the language of a king who's coming back to his city in ancient times especially if you lived in a walled city if the king was away for a time the people would be looking for him and when when the king is coming down the road and the herald sees him they would announce, the king is coming. And when you heard that announcement and you looked out up at the wall and you saw the king coming with his royal entourage, everyone knew what to do. You didn't just sit at home and wait for the king to pass by on the street so you could wave out your window as he came into the city. No, no, when the king is coming, you go out of your home, you go out the front gate, and you go down the road to meet him. And you join in the royal entourage and then you come with him into the city. You don't, as he's coming into the city, you don't go out and say, I'm so glad you're here, thank you. I'm going to go out down the road while you go into the city. I'm out of here, see you later, I'm, I'm done. Uh, but you come in this way. Everyone knows you go out to welcome him in. And so Paul's saying that's, what's gonna, what's, that's what it's going to be like when Christ returns. The dead will be full participants. They're not missing out on his return. They're coming with him, and those alive who are alive when he returns, will go out to meet him, and then all together will come into the city and all together will return to the earth as part of his royal entourage as he comes as the king back uh, reigning to his creation. It's a lot like, think of it this way, it'd be a lot like waiting for the arrival of your family to come and visit and you're so excited you're waiting for them to come and you you're looking out the window and you see the car pull in with your family and so what do you do you race out the front door to greet them you go out and you greet them and you're hugging them and you're welcoming them and then you all together go into the house and you come in and you sit down to a great meal and you enjoy their presence together they're finally back at long last that's what paul's talking about in this passage rapture would be like if your family came back from a long trip and parked in the driveway and you came out to say hello and then you started to walk take you then you got in the car and drove away and they went into your house <laughs> so the destination of that passage in first thessalonians is not about jesus whisking people to heaven but it's about jesus's return to earth that great and final day of his return going out to meet him in the air and then coming back down with him as he comes to reign. Uh, so uh, neither Matthew 24 or 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians, sorry, 4, uh, are about a rapture. Uh, even 1 Corinthians 15, which is uh, that, that has that verse, we shall all be changed in the twinkling, in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. That's about the resurrection of the body. That's also not about 
rapture. At the last trumpet, when Jesus returns, the dead are raised imperishable, and we too shall be changed, says Paul, putting on immortality. O death, where is thy sting? And so this is about the resurrection and our transformation uh, into resurrected bodies. Also makes it very clear that Jesus' return and, and resurrection are happening, happening together. So uh, the reason I, I personally don't believe in the rapture is because I don't think it's biblical. Uh, and if you believe it, that's fine. I'm not too worried, to be honest, because it's not a central part of being a disciple of Jesus. And I'm not trying to be controversial by bringing it up, and I'm, but I'm also uh, not denying a central tenet of Christianity. Rapture has never been uh, one of the historic central beliefs or doctrines of the Christian faith. Jesus' return is, but rapture isn't. And you may ask, well, where did this rapture theology come from? And there's a lot we could say about that. Basically, short form, it came about in the 1800s, late 1800s, got a lot of traction through the 1900s through uh, a minister called Darby and D.L. Moody and the Moody Bible Institute. And then you had a guy called Schofield who uh, did up a Schofield reference Bible, and he was really enamored with rapture theology. And so he put in headings in the Bible that said things like Jesus talks about the rapture. Uh, you have to remember the headings in your Bible are not part of the Bible. They're things that editors put in to help people find their way. But if you've got a guy who's all about this and he says, well, Jesus talks about a rapture, and then you've got an ordinary Joe picks up the Bible and goes, well, right here, here it is. Jesus talks about it, right? And Schofield had various other study notes and whatnot where he, he explained things as though this rapture theology was, was very clearly there. So, but the thing to keep in mind, as far as I can tell, is you know, for 1,800 years, the church didn't believe this. And uh, it's, I would say it's not based on good prayerful study of the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament. There's certainly scholars now, as the doctrine uh, kind of caught on like wildfire, especially as Moody was preaching and whatnot, there became a desire to sort of shore it up, people will say. And so you had various seminaries and stuff have people start to put a lot of work into sort of keeping this doctrine central. Um, but it's, it's a modern phenomenon. It's a mainly Western Christianity phenomenon. It's mainly a, a, a section of Protestants who believe it. And it's held in, in evangelical and, and some Pentecostal circles, but it's not a core Christian teaching. Um, what is a core Christian teaching, you might say? Well, Jesus Christ will physically return to his world to fully establish his kingdom on that great and final day. That is a core Christian teaching. Um, that there will be a resurrection of the body is a core Christian teaching. That there will be a judgment of the living and the dead, as we say in the creed. That's core Christian teaching. And as Revelation twenty-one twenty-two show us, there'll be a new creation where heaven and earth come together. That's core Christian teaching. Um, now, rapture, is a, it's an attractive doctrine. Um, and why is that? Well, we can say, man, when the world's falling apart, uh, Christians won't have to worry about it. We won't have to suffer because we'll be gone. But doesn't that just kind of go against the big idea of Revelation? As we've been studying Revelation, the Bible doesn't just teach us that God is going to evacuate us. Revelation teaches us to be in the hostility of our world without losing hope and without losing heart and that our witness in the midst of persecution actually will lead people to repentance and also that those who die for their faith are held and kept 
in Jesus. And so um, that's all I'm going to say on that. There's a whole lot more one could say on that. And there's lots of biblical scholars. And and let me just say this. There's lots of Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christian people who disagree on that on that topic, but for me, I, I don't believe it's biblical enough, the rapture, for me. Um, it, it's just, it's not found in those passages, and I think it actually misinterprets a lot of uh, the whole thrust of the biblical narrative. Um, but here we are then, in Revelation 16. I wanted to mention that because I, I just felt it was important. We're nearing the end now when God will make all things new, And before that happens, that great day when he will return, he needs to deal comprehensively with evil. And that's what we find here in Revelation 16. Last week, we talked about God's wrath and judgment against evil, that this is a good thing. We want justice for the innocent who have suffered in the world. The trouble, of course, is acknowledging that we too contribute to evil and suffering in the world. It's part of our sin. And the good news is that God has made a way out of sin and out of the guilt that sin creates in us, the punishment that we deserve. He's made a way out through Jesus to deliver us out of sin. He's taken the punishment that we deserve upon himself. This is amazing grace. We talked about how wrath and judgment are actually like an extension of God's love. If God did not account for evil, if he just let it go unchecked, he wouldn't be very loving or good. His wrath and judgment is an extension of his love. But sin is a, it's a personal affront to a holy God. And so to pretend that there's no sin is actually to cheapen the love of God for us. And so here in Revelation, Jesus is giving us a picture of the wrath that the world needs God's righteous, loving response to sin and injustice and evil. And we've seen all throughout that God gives us opportunity to repent and to know his love, to turn to him, and many, many do, but those that consistently refuse, eventually he will bring upon us what we deserve. He'll leave us to our own devices. And now that fifth bowl, if you look at Revelation 16.10, is poured out on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom of the beast is plunged into darkness. It was reminding me very similar to Exodus, where the, the penultimate plague uh, is, is poured out, as you could say, on the throne of Egypt, and the land is cast into darkness. And this idea of pouring it upon the throne, again, it's almost like, like in, in Exodus, poured onto almost Pharaoh and his lineage, right? And then the land's cast into darkness. And so just as Egypt was guilty of bloodshed of the innocent, so these ones here who are experiencing wrath, God's proper and appropriate wrath, are, are guilty because of their bloodshed and violence and sin as well. Uh, in verse 6, it says, this is what they deserve. They've, they've uh, shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. And so Egypt was guilty, and like Pharaoh, uh, these folks here and the beast and the dragon are also guilty and they're also refusing to repent like Pharaoh. And so God is unleashing his justice upon those who perpetuate evil. And it all leads up to the sixth bowl where the dragon and the beast gather the nations to make war on God's people in a place called Armageddon. Now, Armageddon refers to a plane 
in northern Israel where battles were fought by Israel and other uh, against invaders. You can read about that in Judges and in Second Kings. And different people read this passage in different ways. Some see it as an actual future battle in a geographical spot, and others see it as a depiction of God's final battle against evil. Either way, John is, is referencing some of these earlier battles on Armageddon, particularly perhaps in Ezekiel, where God is battling with Gog, God versus Gog. There you go. And in Ezekiel, Gog was the symbol of the rebellious nations that are gathered before God to face his justice. And now the same sort of thing is happening here. Just like Pharaoh uh, assembling his people to come in warfare against God right at the Red Sea moment, right? He, he calls them back together and they go out to chase Israel. Now uh, the beasts and the people who are under the beast and under the dragon and part of this whole system are assembling in warfare against God, thinking they can rebel, thinking they can win. It's very much like Pharaoh in the Exodus. And what happens to Pharaoh? They meet God's justice in the Red Sea. And here we find they meet God's justice, his righteous judgment in the seventh trumpet, which is the day of the Lord. But before the seventh trumpet starts in verse 17, we get again this moment where Jesus speaks. In chapter 16, verse 15. And he says, look, I am coming. It's a promise. Uh, like a thief, it's a surprise. Uh, let him stay awake and keep his garments on so that he may not go about naked and exposed. So what is this? Is this Jesus saying, um, you know, always be wearing clothes. <laughs> always, wear, always be wearing something and you can never go to sleep, you know. Uh, no, there's been depictions throughout Revelation of the church wearing white. Uh, Revelation 7, 13, 14 talks about their, uh, those are clothed in white. Those clothed in white are, are made white by the blood of the Lamb. This is part about having responded to the gospel, to the message of Jesus, and having him cleanse and wash away our sin. So what is Jesus saying here? I think he's making a very important point uh, at this moment, that through his death and resurrection, we can put on clothes that have been washed white. And in the midst of all this judgment, Jesus reminds us that it's only through his death, by him taking onto himself the wrath we deserve for our sin, that we are protected from the judgment of God. The good news of the gospel isn't that there's no judgment. I mean, we stand guilty. The good news is that God himself in Jesus has stood in our place and he's taken the punishment of sin upon himself like the judge who delivers uh, a guilty verdict to a criminal and then gets off the bench and comes down and takes the punishment upon himself in the criminal's place that's what jesus has done for us we stand guilty but god sent his son to stand in our place and receive the just punishment for sin upon himself and when we accept that uh, that truth, that reality, that he has done that for us. Our clothes are washed clean. We become clean. His righteousness is transferred on to us. And so here Jesus is saying, in the moment of judgment, in the moment of this battle, we are to be reminded that he is coming and that we are to stand in the truth of the gospel, that we are saved and cleansed and washed clean 
in him. Not to give up on that, but to wear that truth, to wear our white garments, to wear the gospel, to live it out, to be attentive to the righteousness of God. The more we do that, the more we're aware of our Christian identity and the more we live in sync with him, the more we are awake and alert to God and the more we resist the delusions of the evil one. As we keep ourselves alive and attentive to Jesus, we can look to the day of the Lord with fresh appreciation. So Jesus says, he is coming. Stay alert. And then we get the seventh bowl. And with the seventh bowl, we hear, it is done. That sounds familiar, right? It's done. And then we, we have flashes of lightning and thunder and earthquakes and all sorts of, of, of sort of destruction. All these signs. Actually, it sounds a lot like Mount Sinai, doesn't it? Flashes of light and thunder and rumbling. Um, this is now the final bowl of the final set of seven judgments. We have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Uh, and they all end, I mentioned this before, they all end seemingly with the day of the Lord. They're, it seems like they're depicting the same moment or event, which is God's return, the day of Yahweh, from three different perspectives. And at the end of the seals and the end of the trumpets and the end of the bowls, there's some very remarking, or remarkable similarity. You get the proclamation from heaven of God's salvation or of God's um, kingdom come, or of God's justice. Just and true are your ways. We also get the same sort of judgment imagery of thunder, rumbling, lightning, hail, earthquakes. And we also, at, at each of the three, we see whether it's the powerful and the rich or the worshipers of idols or, the, or here the, the ones that follow the beast, choose not to repent. Remember at the end of the seven seals, uh, the rich and powerful, they're, they're experiencing this destruction. They say, who can stand? Who can stand on the day of the Lord? And then John pauses to show us who indeed can stand. It's those who follow the Lamb. And it's very similar to what we see here. Who can stand in the midst of this? We've just had Jesus say in verse 15, I'm coming. Keep your garments on. Continue to follow me. You will, be, you will stand. You will be held in the midst of all of this. So again, each of these seem to depict the same moment. There's variety of views on that. And, and you may notice even as, I, as I've preached through Revelation, I'm not giving you a systematic theology class on the book of Revelation uh, or on eschatology. I, I want to preach this pastorally and, and think about the implications for us to live out today. Uh, I could give a two-hour lecture on various views of Revelation. We could talk about the preterists and the futurists and the historicists and the idealists and all the rest of it and talk through verse by verse. And I, um, I could do that, but that's not the purpose of preaching. The purpose of preaching is to exposit Jesus in this text and to see how Jesus speaks to us today uh, in our moment through his living word. I think it's just so clear here for us. We could get into all of those details, but that's, that's a separate thing. Um, what we can see here is that Jesus will return, and he will judge the wicked of the world. He will establish his kingdom. He will come and set things right, and he will respond to the armies of evil that are assembled against him, and he will bring about his new creation. And that's what we're to look forward to. 
you know, it's so much, uh, it's just so interesting. I think rather than thinking of rapture as our hope, the Bible teaches us to look forward to a different R, not rapture, but to his return, and perhaps even alongside his return, not perhaps, it's going to say more importantly, but it's not as more importantly, along with his return is his resurrection, the re- our resurrection, and the promise of what that means for us. Um, I've been thinking, I just feel so much more lately as I'm more aware of news and more aware of all the politicking that goes on uh, in the States and Canada, issues around COVID and issues around, oh, it's just, it's very messy and very noisy and easy to get very down um, if you just kind of get lost in the news cycle and lost in in the latest sort of thing. And uh, I've just been aware of uh, more aware probably than ever of those in the world who are just so obviously against God and just obviously against God's heart and obviously against God's people. And I used to think when I was reading the Psalms and there was passages about my enemies coming after me, I used to think like, man, I can't really relate to that. You know, that's like talking about Philistines coming after David and stuff like that. But but I have to remember the Psalms are the churches, uh, the people of God's hymn book, whether it was in ancient Israel through those that time or even on through the church age the psalms have always been our prayer book and our song book and i think now more than ever i feel like i can relate to the passages that talk about my adversaries rising up against me or those who who resist god and 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 rise up against him and seek to put to death those that follow him. i just feel like wow i can i can really see that more than ever i mean that's always been there but in my own journey as a as a person and as an adult being more aware than ever when I was a teenager of, of just stuff going on in the world and realizing uh, all throughout the Psalms, there's this sense of hoping in God, even as the world turns really, really poorly around us. Um, and the hope is for God to intervene and do stuff, God to come and set things right. And often in the Psalms, the turn of seeing uh, the despair around us, feeling despair in our hearts at what's going on around us. And you can relate this so well if you're feeling overwhelmed with COVID, right? And then turning our thoughts and attention back to God intentionally and saying, I'm going to put my hope in you, even as the world seems to be falling apart around me. And I love that that, that theme of seeing the brokenness, seeing the persecution, seeing evil in the world, but still turning and trusting God through the Psalms is so relatable to us today and is so relatable uh, to what a lot of the thematic material in Revelation is, where we see things get worse. We see evil at work. Um, but we also see God intervening and doing things to set his world to right. And in the midst of that, we are called to set our eyes on Jesus and to live for him even when the world seems to be falling apart around us. And so before this great day of the Lord comes... There's a call for us as the church to live out our mission to be faithful even in difficult times and to call people to repentance. I think it's true that we can see present disasters in our world and see how those foreshadow judgments to come, the sense of escalation. Um, But rather than getting worried about that, we find all throughout Revelation this idea that at the end of the age, Jesus will defeat and destroy his enemies. The martyrs who have died will be vindicated in his victory when he returns. 
And so, friends, today I just pray that you are encouraged. Uh, There's so much hope that we have here in this passage to know that God is going to set things right regardless of how bleak things may look in our world. I think things could look a lot bleaker than they are currently. Uh, and, and in past times throughout human history, it certainly has looked worse uh, in various countries. But regardless, we're not called to just play a, play a game of comparing, you know, my, my country's worse than your country at this time situation. Our call is to not be so caught up in what's evil going on around us, that we're called to be aware of it and pay attention to it, but to not let that so direct and, and, and wear on our hearts that we don't turn our attention to Jesus and put our hope in him to say, God, you're going to have to deal with this brokenness in the world. Yes, we're called to live for you, uh, stand up for righteousness, um, but ultimately we entrust the fate of our nations and the the, the destiny of our friends and family, Lord, that's in your hands. You call each of us to be faithful, to live for you with the time that you've given to us. And that's all that you've entrusted us to do. The fate of the world, the destruction of all evil, that's in God's hands. But I can be faithful today to be a godly husband, to be a godly father, and to seek to pastor uh, the church that God has let me be a mini shepherd over, even though he's the main shepherd of our church. Uh, he's called me to, to help lead and shepherd well, as best as I can. And I can pour my energies into being worried about what I see around me and the brokenness in the world, or I can pour my energy into being a faithful follower of Jesus, keeping my garments on, as Jesus says. Even as the world around you seems to be terrible, remember, I'm coming. Keep your garments on. Stay firm in the truth of the gospel. And to me, that means being faithful to the calling that God has given me to be a husband, to be a father, uh, to pastor the church well, uh, to be a son, uh, and most of all, to be a disciple of Jesus. And so I just pray, uh, as we head to prayer, that you would keep that first and foremost in your hearts and minds, even as we talk about judgment and end of the world sort of stuff. There's a call here to live faithfully for Jesus uh, with the task that he has given you the role that he's given you here and now today. So let's pray to that end. Lord, as we uh, think on your word, as we meditate on your word, Jesus, I pray that we would uh, know for ourselves the truth of your gospel, that you have called us out of darkness and into light, that you've called us into a kingdom. And Lord, you will come at this future day. We don't know when it is. But we know you will come, you will deal with evil, you will establish your kingdom, you will resurrect the dead, you will transform us in resurrection. And Lord, you will bring heaven and earth together in a new creation. Lord, that's our hope. We look forward to your return and to the promise of your resurrection. Lord, we've talked about some some touchy issues today in Christian theology. Uh, some some topics that are often very emotionally laden for people. And, and uh, Lord, I, I pray that each one would know my heart is not to uh, just open a can of worms or to, or to be uh, flippant about something, but, Lord, you would uh, help all, each of us to extend grace to each other and, and to uh, be, at the end of the day, uh, committed more and more fully to you, to recognize there's difference of opinion on some of these things, and that's okay but to hold on to the key essentials. And Lord, 
uh, we pray today that you would steady in us the key essential truth that you are coming again. That you do love your world. That there's hope for us as we follow you and trust in you. Lord, that you will deal with with evil and sin and brokenness uh, finally and fully. And Lord, before that comes, there's a call on our lives to go into the, all the world and to preach the gospel, to baptize, to teach, to, to train people to live as your disciples, as your ambassadors, as your students, as your friends, in a world that often is falling apart. Uh, a world, Lord, though, that you love and you will ultimately redeem and restore. And so, God, I pray today that you would encourage each one who's listening to this message, whether they agree or disagree on points of rapture is really kind of irrelevant. But Lord, at the end of the day, we would know as believers that our hope and our rest is found in you. And Jesus, that you will see us through. And Father, I pray that you would quicken in our hearts a desire to live for you in such a way that others are pointed towards you and into a relationship with you. Lord, at the end of the day, that matters so much. And I pray over each one who's watching or listening that you would uh, equip us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live out the calling on our lives well here and now, whether that's as spouses or as moms and dads over our families or in our business, work of, you know, place of work or at school, uh, whatever it might be. Lord, all of us are called into relationships, into tasks before us as we head into a new week. Help us to be faithful and to live each moment as worship unto you. Lord, that we may not be found uh, uh, naked, as it were, and, and unaware, just kind of flippant about our faith, but Lord, alive and found and active in you, uh, pursuing you, Jesus, and caring well for those around us, pointing them to the truth of your gospel. And with the words you've taught us, we pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Friends, bless you as you go. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And we are going to have a fellowship time afterwards online at 1030. Love for you to join us, whether it's just over the phone or you have a computer or a phone, uh, some kind of webcam that you can connect with us. We just love to say hi and encourage each other, especially during the freezing day we have of COVID. <laughs> it's like there was ever a stay-at-home order. It's now more than ever. <laughs> There's freezing, freezing warnings on. So bless you. Have a fantastic week. And I hope to see some of you in about 20 minutes or so. Uh, we love you. Take care. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.